Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the Lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? If I said the word gospel, what junk drawer do you put that in in your mind? Does it go into the religious junk drawer? Does it go into the Christianity junk drawer? What are the other topics that you see it being related to? Well, let me ask a second question. Would you put it into the political junk drawer? I think for a lot of people, that wouldn't be the case. And yet, in the first century, that might have been the very mental junk drawer that words like gospel went straight into. Patrick Schreiner wrote the book Political Gospel, where he explores how this word gospel that we use all the time actually relates to politics. Let's hop in. After yet another exhausting political season, I think the last thing most people want are more political Christians. So I have to imagine when people see your book, Political Gospel, they probably kind of freak out. Is this turning politics into the gospel? Is this yet another Christian swing for political power? Is this just refurbishing the moral majority? And so I kind of want to start there with you today, Patrick. How do you respond to that question? Yeah, it's a great question. And I understand that people are tired of talking about politics, maybe even of thinking about politics, of watching people talk about politics. And so I'm sympathetic to that. And what I'm not trying to do is step in here and say, let's have a bunch more debates about the issues, about candidates. And, you know, we can get into some of those things, but Really, I'm trying to provide a book on political discipleship from the scriptures. That's an interesting phrase, political discipleship. What does that even mean? I believe all of our life is to be formed around Jesus Christ as Christians. He's the king of our lives. And that means you can use a metaphor like he goes into every corner of your life. And so political discipleship just means Jesus teaches us how to engage with politics. And so, yeah, I'm really pressing for us to go back to the scriptures and say, how should we think about politics? And even kind of redefining what politics is in some sense. So when you hear me say politics, you might say, well, he's talking about partisanship. That's actually not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about politics in a wider sense. That's really good because in your book, you say that Jesus has a politic. And I connected with that because I say that exact same phrase quite a bit. In fact, just the other day, I was out grabbing lunch with some really sharp people and I made the statement. I said, Jesus has a politic. And it really offended one of the guys who was at dinner with me because no, Jesus isn't political. Jesus isn't riding on a donkey or an elephant. You're wrong. Jesus doesn't have a politic. So if you were at dinner, what would you say? I would agree with you <laughs> that Jesus has a politic, but we have to define what politics is. Again, as I just said, when we hear political in the American kind of culture, we hear partisan. So when you hear someone say Jesus has a politic, you think they're about to convince you of Republican or Democrat. No, what politics just comes from the organization activities of a people brought together under the governance of someone else. And so who has the right to rule and order our lives? So politics is the organization of a people. And so when I say Jesus has a politic, he's telling us how to live together as a community. That's all politics is. And so we really need to step back when we use the word political and say, what is a politic? Well, we need to go back kind of to the history even of the word. And so I don't want to co-opt Jesus into a political party. What I want to say is Jesus is telling us how we should live and how we should live together. Diedrich Bonhoeffer talks about life together. Oh, right? Yeah, yeah. How do we do life together, both in the church and outside of the church? 
Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And it's really helpful because I've had to realize that when I say Jesus has a politic or that people hear what you said, Jesus is a partisan from one party or the other party, which is of course anachronistic. You know, it's not as though a first century Jesus was walking around thinking about Republicans and Democrats in an American context. That's just silly. But I appreciate what you're saying, which is that a politic is how we organize our lives. It's how we think about our families. It's how we deal with sex. It's how we treat our enemies, how we treat wrongdoing inside of a society. It's how we organize ourselves collectively into a body. But I think that's really challenging for a lot of us, at least in modern day Western American Christianity, to get our head around because we're used to reading the Bible individualistically, almost as a manual for me as an individual person atomized from everybody else out there. And I think that highlights two problems. Like I just said, the problem of seeing the gospel individualistically, but also the tendency to see the gospel as a private message, not so much a public collective message. Yeah. I know you challenge those ideas in your book, but I want to just ask, why do we see the gospel individualistically and how do we need to challenge that? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of truth, I think, in evangelical Christian culture. You know, most of us were probably raised in churches where it was Christianity. It's about you and Jesus. It's about a relationship that you have. You even use the phrase like you invite Jesus into your heart as a young child, right? And for many of us, these were helpful things for us. Like this is how we got introduced to Christianity. We pray to Jesus individually. Even as we sing songs, we close our eyes. We think about him. He's our savior. He's our friend. And I don't actually want to deny a lot of that is good. What I want to challenge, though, is that it's incomplete. (laughs) Jesus didn't just come so that you can have a good relationship with him. In the book, I say Jesus came announced a kingdom, and that's about society together. So it's not just individualistic. It is about individuals, but it's about individuals coming together and joining together kind of on this mission and submitting to him as king. So when Jesus announces the gospel of the kingdom, that's much bigger than me or you, but it includes me or you. So my fear is that if we start with that individual side of it, we lose the bigger picture, the cosmic or the kind of political side of it. But if we actually begin with the bigger picture, we include the individual. And so I'm not denying the individual part of it is important, but that we've probably overemphasized it. And this conversation is difficult because we tend to either, as you said, privatize our faith and say it has nothing to do with politics in the world, or we partisanize our faith and we say, well, Jesus fits into this political party. And so there's kind of two different, (laughs) and maybe they actually come together, paradoxical ways that we think about things. And sometimes people actually have both of those. It's both an individualistic thing and somehow it's a partisan thing because my Jesus fits with this political party. And I'm trying to kind of say, hey, let's reset this conversation and actually ask what Jesus was trying to do That's a brief summary there. Let's talk a bit more about that. Why do we see the gospel as private and how is the gospel public? Yeah, I think we see the gospel as private because a lot of times we talk about the gospel as just about forgiveness of our sins personally. And that is a huge component of it. But again, it's just much bigger than that. So I already mentioned this, but when Jesus announces the gospel of the kingdom, he's talking about the victory of his empire. (laughs) So another way to speak about the kingdom is to speak about an empire. And when he declares himself to be a king, he's saying, I'm a monarch. And so that language scares us a little bit because it sounds really authoritarian, (laughs) right? We're really good with Jesus as our friend, and we're really good with Jesus as forgiving our sins. But when we hear that Jesus declared that he's a monarch over an empire, that kind of scares (laughs) us. Like, what does that exactly mean? It starts feeling a little icky. Yeah. But if you go back to the first century when Jesus was walking around, you know, there wasn't the separation of religion and politics. Those two things were combined. You know, culture teaches us to view our religion as a private thing and to view politics in the worldly sense as a public thing. And these two are separate and they should never interact. We do have separation of church and state, but all that is saying is that the state shouldn't force one religion. I think we all believe actually our private beliefs influence our public beliefs and they should actually influence our public beliefs. So it's messier than we actually think. Religion and politics, if we're going to the modern sense of that, actually are interrelated. And in Jesus' time, they were completely interrelated. And so when Jesus comes and announces that gospel of the kingdom, it is both a religious and a political statement. Read Matthew 2. King Herod wasn't very excited that a new king was born. So he decides, I'm going to kill some baby boys in Bethlehem to try to get rid of this new king. Now, if he just thought... 
hey, it's this new teacher who's going to gather some people and tell them a spiritual message. He's got nothing to worry about. He is worried because <laughs> yeah. the Jews are saying, hey, we've got a new king. He's just been born. And he's like, let me find out about this guy. I need to get rid of this guy. So you can see, I think, very much at the beginning of the Gospels that Jesus has a very political message. And we could talk a lot more about even the commands that he gives to his followers in the Sermon on the Mount. How do you do life together? Again, it's not just an individualistic thing. Yeah, it's about lust and hate, but that has to do also with society as a whole. So it is about your heart, but it's about how your heart interacts with others as well. It actually makes me reflect on my own reading of the Sermon on the Mount. I remember after I became a Christian, I'm pretty sure one of the first books I read in the Bible was Matthew because it's the first gospel in the New Testament. And I get to the Sermon on the Mount and I'm reading all this stuff like you said about love and anger and forgiveness and how to pray and who's blessed and all of these amazing statements. And I read it entirely individualistically as though I kind of had this guide for how to live a blessed life. You know, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the mourners, blessed are the pure in heart. Okay, that's what I need to do individually in my own life to experience the blessing and the wholeness of God. And I remember later on as a Christian, someone positing to me the idea that Jesus was talking to a crowd. And I went back and I read and I thought, oh my gosh, he is talking to a crowd. And why that mattered was it totally changed how I read the Sermon on the Mount because I realized, yes, he was speaking to individuals, but he was telling them, how do we live together? What's our collective going to look like when we do life in the kingdom with one another? And he's laying out almost the constitution, the public constitution of what it looks like to live in Christian life together. And then as I reread through the Sermon on the Mount, I began to realize it's all over the place because it isn't just about what I do for the most part. I mean, other than when he says to go, pray in private. It isn't mostly about what I do in private. It's about what I do with other people. And so this is a charter for how to live collectively. It's really easy to read Jesus individualistically. It can be really challenging to read him as giving a public message because we haven't been trained how to do it. I think another dimension that I struggled with early on was just the language of the kingdom of God. I read it as basically being about heaven. And it's partially because I think I read Matthew first, right? So he talks about the kingdom of heaven, which is, of course, <laughs> heaven was a way of saying God. And so I thought, oh yeah, so the kingdom of God is where I go when I die. What is the kingdom of God? Is that a right reading? Yeah, we are just jumping into kingdom language, but because of that kind of individualism that seeps into our culture and our thinking, like you said, when you hear kingdom, it's like, well, it's God's reign over my life, or that's heaven. That's where I'm going in the future. So we make that individualistic again. But if you go back to the Old Testament and to what Israel was longing for, the kingdom is a new society and a new city, right? So I have a little book that talks about it's the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. And so it is about a new society. That's maybe the best way to summarize it. When Jesus announces a new kingdom, it is completely communal. And so we don't want to just think the kingdom of God is heaven and that we're going to go there at some point. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. It's even present now in his people, in his body, in his community. And so theologians use this term of already not yet, right? It's already here and it's still not yet here in fullness. And I think that's true. And we actually see the kingdom now in the church. We see the gathered community of God. Some people have called it kind of like an embassy of the kingdom. So if you have like a representative of a nation who goes to another nation, sometimes they'll have an embassy there, right? And they represent that nation there. I think Christians are embassies of the kingdom of God and the church is our little embassy there where we are citizens of heaven, but we are also citizens of this earth and we're representing heaven to those who live on the earth. So we have that kind of dual citizenship, right? That's how the scriptures speak about it. We are both citizens here and we're citizens of heaven. That's a really helpful picture of the embassy because it kind of gives us a story in which we can think about our politics because that story would be offensive to a lot of people. It would be offensive to those who say, just privatize your faith. Don't bring it into the public square. You say, well, no, we are an embassy and embassies by their nature exist in the public square. They are communicating the presence of one kingdom to another kingdom. But it also challenges maybe people on kind of the Christian nationalist crowd, for example, because they 
could say, we're not an embassy. We are the kingdom. This is the way the nation is going to be. And so it totally reorients how we engage inside of our political spaces. One of the things you do in your book that I found really helpful is you point out that there's a lot of words that we kind of put into our category of religious words. Like we kind of have these little junk drawer of religious words that we toss in there. And you make the point that a lot of those words in their original context were actually political words. So could you share what some of those words are? Kingdom might be one of them, actually, if you read it in kind of the heaven sense. I thought that was about heaven. And actually, it's talking about a kind of alternative counterculture that's an embassy in the present. But what are some other words that we think of as religious words that in their original context would have been understood politically? Yeah. You know, in the book, I give this example, you know, my mom had a terrible bicycle accident and she hit her head. She's doing really well now, but she hit her head and the doctor told us that it's almost like everything in her mind had to be refiled over time because it was like a junk drawer had been spilled over and it was scattered on the floor. So she had to like refile things into different folders. And that's really how our mind works. We know what words mean. We know what concepts are based on finding them in different categories. And I use that concept to say, you know, when we think of religious terms, we don't combine it with political terms. So you think of a term like savior or gospel or kingdom or believe or faith or whatever it is. And you're like, okay, those are religious terms, but we also have political terms, which are different than that. But when you go back and actually look at these terms in the Bible, for example, gospel, we think of gospel, oh, I'm sharing the gospel, right? I'm sharing the good news of Jesus. That's a religious term. But if you actually go back and read what the gospel is in the Old Testament, in the Greco-Roman times, and in the New Testament, you find out that gospel is actually a political term. It's the announcement of a victory. So typically, you'd have somebody who would run from the field, who would deliver this message, this gospel that the king has won, (laughs) that their empire has won. In other words, we've defeated uh, our enemies. And that was usually how the term gospel was used. It was like, good news, our team won. This is what happened. So it was a very public and political term. So when Jesus comes on the scene and he says, repent, for the gospel of the kingdom is here, or the gospel of the kingdom is at hand, people would have heard the gospel of the kingdom, the victory of my empire is at hand. Wow, that's a very political statement. And so I'm just trying to reframe for people to understand that Jesus's message wasn't just a private message. It was a fully political message. And another word that we think of as a religious term is faith. Like you need to have faith in Jesus. Okay, that's a personal thing, right? That's something that we don't have evidence for. That's like a leap in the dark where we don't take any evidence and we just have faith in Jesus. But a lot of work has been done on the term faith or believe. And we now understand that it actually could mean also allegiance or loyalty. So think of these terms. We've already talked about kingdom. We've already talked about gospel. and We've talked about this term faith. When Jesus announces the gospel of the kingdom is at hand, repent and have loyalty or allegiance in me. And then Jesus is crucified as the king. Like it all fits that Jesus is a very political figure. I mean, Jesus is a controversial figure and he needs to be a controversial figure because he is a political figure. He's not just a religious figure. He's claiming that I want to be the king over your whole life. (laughs) And that includes what we call the political realm. And so this is where we're using political in two different ways, the worldly political sense and then Jesus' political sense. That's your whole life, your whole public life. Yeah, I remember reading, I think it was N.T. Wright, and he points to an inscription that was made in 9 BC in, I think, Prien. I might be mispronouncing the area. No one knows how to pronounce that except N.T. Wright. That's what I say. Perfect. That's exactly right. So we'll have him (laughs) on and we'll have him sort that out for us. But until then, we'll call it Prien. And in this inscription, it's celebrating after the fact the birth of Caesar Augustus, so the emperor alive at the time of Jesus's birth. And I remember reading it and seeing all of these words that I had in my faith junk drawer. Now they were all of a sudden in the political drunk drawer because he's described as a Lord and a Savior and a Son of God. He talks about the gospel, the good news of his birth and that he brought peace to the world. And all of these things that I kind of associated as religious language, I realized, no, this is imperial language. This is what people expected others to say about the emperor. And now all of a sudden, Jesus' crucifixion begins to make a lot of sense because when you have an itinerant rabbi marching around Roman-occupied areas announcing a different kingdom, a different Lord, a different Savior, a different piece, you've got someone who's asking for it. You've got someone who's saying something incredibly controversial. So let's dig in a little bit into Jesus and explore how that 
political aspect of his life was present. How were Jesus's actions political? They were political in a variety of ways. I mean, he was forming a new community. And so, you know, Pilate is concerned about this figure. So in Jesus's trial, he comes before the kind of Jewish council in the trial, and they're like accusing him of different things. But when he comes before Pilate, he goes, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus's answer is strange, but he said, you have said so, or you say so. And we're always like, hmm, what does that mean? What is he trying to say here? And if we go back to that phrase, I don't think Jesus is denying that he's a king. He's just saying, I'm not the type of king that you expect. And so, yes, I am a king. And actually, you're about to enthrone me as the king on this Roman cross. But I'm not the type of king that you expect. In other words, if you go back to my teachings, yes, I'm gathering a new community. Yes, I'm actually challenging the way that you rule over this land. Yes, I'm actually challenging the way that life is done in the in the current moment. So all those things are true. And that's what I call is very subversive. So you think about Mark, one of the most famous verses in Mark is in Mark 10, 45, when Jesus says, I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. But you back up one or two verses, and he's contrasting that to the way that the Gentiles rule over them. So he's saying, look at those kings. I'm not going to rule over you like that. I'm not going to lord it over you. I'm not going to domineer over you. I'm a different type of king. I think that's our paradigm there, that he says, yes, I am a king, but I'm a different type of king. So when he goes before Pilate and he says, you say so, I am a king, he's actually redefining what type of kingship it is. And so at the beginning of this conversation, we started talking about like, man, these terms make us nervous, like empire, monarch, kingdom. He's going to rule over our lives. It sounds so authoritarian. But then when you read Jesus's life, he's like, forgive one another, lay down your lives for one another. And not only that, I'm going to lay my life down for you. So this is kind of cool. I didn't get into this in the book, but you know, kings at that time, generally, like especially in the first century, it varies based on where you are in history. But many of the times a Caesar would not go into battle because they need to preserve what they called the head of their state. (laughs) So you protect the head of the state. Jesus, as the head of his state, says, nope, I'm the first one to go into battle, and I'm actually going to lay my life down. So what I love about Jesus's politics is he reframes all of our notions about what politics should be about, right? He says, I'm going to be a different type of king, and you need to be a different type of society. And so we spoke about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, what? Love your enemies. <laughs> Do good to those who persecute you. Blessed are you if you are persecuted. You know, if a Roman soldier comes by and says, walk with me for a mile and carry all my armor, go with them for two miles. And so Pilate looks at him and he's like, wait a second, you're innocent. Like I've got nothing against you. But then at the very same time, this is actually the kingdom coming to bear upon Pilate's reign. So it's the paradox that I really wanted to explore in this book, that Jesus's message is fully political. But at the same time, the world looks at him and says, I don't know what to do with this politic because I've never seen a politic like this. (laughs) What I love about that is, you know, I'm talking just about what Jesus did, but that's our marching orders too. He says, follow in my footsteps. And so if we get to the practical, and I know we're probably going to get there soon, But if I could just say like a brief word about, you know, that people should look at us and say, man, I might not love your politic, but at the same time, I don't know what to do with your politic. (laughs) (laughs) This is so otherworldly. This is so backwards to me that you would look at other people who should be your enemies and you say, I want to love them. That's what Jesus taught us. I think you're right. And in your book, you talk about both subversion and submission. And I want to get into what those words mean in just a second. But what you're describing is a form of subversion. The problem is it's totally unlike any form of subversion that we know. It's not burning down buildings. It's not breaking into the Capitol. It's not violence. It is, I will lay down my life first for you. (laughs) And that is a very different form of subversion than what we're used to. But before we hop there, I want to ask one other question about Jesus, maybe two more, because I really want our listeners to understand how political he was, because I think it goes over our heads. And one area that we definitely put into our spiritual drunk drawer is spiritual warfare. How are Jesus's exorcisms political? Some help comes from reading Revelation and recognizing that the spiritual forces are animating the kingdoms of this world. And so, you know, there's a ton of debate about Revelation, what's going on. But one thing is really clear. What's clear is that Satan stands behind the kingdoms of this earth. And so if you lay that picture of revelation over what Jesus does in his exorcisms, then suddenly you start to see, oh, this isn't just a spiritual exorcism. 
This is Jesus confronting the powers of this world. And so one text I go to is the exorcism of Legion in Mark 5. Now, Legion is another term for a portion of the Roman army. <laughs> so you would meet a legion of Roman soldiers. And so when Jesus actually performs that exorcism, there's a ton of language in that exorcism that shows this is probably a political parable. You might remember at the end of Mark 5, he actually sends the spirits into the pigs. And these pigs were actually a mascot for a Roman army. And so I'm not denying that there's a spiritual aspect to it. But sometimes if you start to put this political lens on your reading of the scriptures, you can see that Jesus is showing as he exercises this demon named Legion, that it is actually the spiritual forces that are animating Rome at that time. And so Jesus is coming and saying, I'm bringing to this man who has been in shackles, who has been cutting himself, a new type of kingdom. I'm a new type of king that is actually freeing him. So that's one example just where you can see, wow, there's a lot more going on in Jesus's ministry than we initially see. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. How do we see Jesus's politic at work in the crucifixion and also the ascension? Yeah, so you mentioned submission and subversion. And I use those two terms as kind of what Jesus is doing. And what you see in the cross is that Jesus actually challenges Rome and their type of rule by submitting to them and going to the cross and saying, the type of king that I am is I'm actually going to die on behalf of my people. So what's amazing at the cross is he submits to the rule. And I think Paul actually follows Jesus when he says, submit to the rulers who are over you in Romans 13. He follows Jesus, but in so doing, you're actually submitting to a higher king, right? So you're following a new king by actually submitting to the rulers who are here on the earth. And this actually fits like the most political text that we can think of just initially probably is Mark 12 when Jesus is asked about paying taxes to Caesar. And what does he say? He doesn't fly off the rails and he doesn't say, oh man, Caesar is so terrible. I can't believe that he requires this of you. No, he says, pay taxes to Caesar. But remember, give all things to God. <laughs> In the midst of that statement, he's doing something really unique. He's saying, you know what? It's okay that Caesar rules over you right now, but ultimately God rules over you. And so Caesar's sovereignty fits under my sovereignty, not the other way around. So you can pay taxes to Caesar, but it's because I am the one who is over your whole life, not Caesar. It seems like it's that same theme of subversive submission. And you talk specifically about Jesus's baptism and the imagery of the dove descending upon him as the father you know, says that he's well pleased with his son. Why is the imagery of a dove so significant? Yeah, that's another scene, kind of like the exorcism of legion that we just think, okay, if you read that text, it's like, okay, he's being declared as the new king. So this dove who is the Holy Spirit rests upon him. But when you start reading the background to birds landing on people's shoulders or the flight of the birds, you understand that in Roman times, many of their emperors, many of their Caesars were chosen because of the flight of the birds. And 
we actually forget that this is a big part of how inaugurations would happen. So if you pick up a quarter dollar, I don't know if anyone uses coins anymore today, but if you pick up a quarter dollar and you turn to the back, what's on the back of a quarter dollar? It's an eagle. Why is there an eagle on the back of a quarter dollar? Because in Roman times, watching the flight of eagles would signal who the next king was. So lay that picture. I know this is maybe complicated, but lay that picture over the flight of a dove coming to rest on Jesus's shoulder. Yes, the flight of the bird was affirming that Jesus was the king, but he was a different type of king than an eagle. Because an eagle is like a bird of war, while a dove is like a bird of peace. And so I think when the original readers were actually seeing or reading about the flight of this dove coming upon his shoulder, they're recognizing this is the new king, but this is a different king. This is not the flight of an eagle. This is the flight of the dove. And so I think he comes by the way of peace. You know, I keep on using this word paradox, but that's the paradox of Jesus's ministry. He announces that he's the king of the kingdom, that his victory has come, that we need to have allegiance towards him. But at the same time, he has a message of peace. <laughs> he has a message of put down your sword. He has a message of, you know, in the garden, when Peter takes out his sword and he cuts off the right ear of the high priest's servant, Jesus says, no, that's not the way my kingdom comes. And so what I'm a little afraid of is when I say Jesus has a politic and he announces the kingdom, that people will misunderstand that we need to go out and conquer, right? We need to conquer America for God. That's precisely not what I'm saying and precisely what Jesus is not getting at. What I'm saying is, no, Jesus did announce a new politic. But it's a politic that really turns the world upside down. It's not the politic that you expect. And so, you know, Christians, sometimes I'm afraid we get so into this kind of domineering, like we are going to dominate the culture. We're going to win the culture. We get another word for it is triumphalistic. <laughs> but Jesus was the opposite of triumphalistic. We need to bring both of these things together. We are bringing in a new society. Yes, Christians are bringing in a new society, but at the same time, we do so by submission and sacrifice. Yeah, and one of the major themes in your book is subversion and submission and how we see that play out in paradoxical ways throughout the gospel. And to anybody listening to this, again, I would really recommend you pick up Patrick's book because you talk about this in the Ascension, in the early ministry of the apostles. One of my favorite chapters is you talk about the church, and I didn't know this, that the Greek word for church was actually a word that would have been used for a political assembly. And so when you have these Christians gathering together in what is in effect a political assembly, they were literally proclaiming an alternative kingdom through their lives, through their actions their words, their deeds. They were proclaiming a different kingdom in their life together, which, I mean, gosh, if you think about that coming to church, that that's what we're doing. Well, let me just ask you, I mean, how does that change how you think about church? You go to worship, hopefully most Sundays. How does seeing the church as a political body change how you worship? Yeah. I mean, I think putting all of church in the frame of politics has been really helpful for me because as we began this conversation, we could get so tired about talking about politics, right? But when I go to church, I'm being reminded when a sermon is preached that Jesus Christ is king. It's actually a political speech to say, hey, Jesus Christ is king. He's Lord of your life. And this is what it means for you to follow him. And really, this is a gathering of people who have said, I want to submit to him or I'm interested in him. And I want to come together and learn how to do that together. Right. And then think about this. When you sing songs to him, America, actually, we have Pledge of Allegiance. <laughs> right. When we sing songs to him, we're actually praising our true king. And we also have signs and symbols that represent that we are part of this team now. So we have baptism and the Lord's Supper that remind us of what our king has done for us. And that we're actually putting on, I like to say, like we're putting on his jersey. You know, we also have Sunday as our sacred day. America has sacred days. We have holidays that we celebrate. And these aren't bad things, but just know that there's a sense in which American culture is trying to form you and your allegiance, right? And church, church as a political assembly is actually reminding us of our true allegiance. And so for me, that's been really helpful because I wake up every Sunday morning. It's just the pattern of our lives. We go to church unless we're deathly sick, right? We go to church. And as we go to church, we are reminded why we are here and what we are called to do. And so it is just like, I mean, in many ways, right? I don't know if schools still do this, but at the beginning of school, when I went to school, you would pledge allegiance to the American flag, right? You would stand there. That's the first thing you do. And that's a formation piece. Well, every Sunday, we pledge our allegiance to another kingdom. <laughs> and what's amazing is that doesn't mean we're not citizens here of 
the American nation, but that that is primary for us. And so this new body politic is really what it is. I mean, we talked about the embassy earlier. We're there as an embassy to this other kingdom, right? We are citizens of heaven itself. And so that helps us in terms of not going to church and just thinking this is a private thing. (laughs) Again, it helps us saying, oh, we're going to church because we are a new community. We're a new society. We're actually showing the world what it looks like to live under King Jesus. Now, we always will fail in that. You know, you think of churches and you're like, man, the church is not doing a great job of that. Yeah, that's because we're still sinners and we're waiting for our king to return. I would hope that our church and the churches around us in Kansas City and that your church, that people would come in and they'd say, this is the type of society I want to be a part of. I actually wish our whole society was more like this, where we love one another, we sacrifice for one another, we know one another's needs, and we care for one another, and we remind ourselves that Jesus is our ultimate king. When people say, well, what does this have to do with my everyday life? Actually, I'm just repeating what someone else said, but I love this line. The most political thing you can do week in and week out is take communion. (laughs) That's the most political thing. People are like, how do I be more political? Should I vote more? Should I read more about candidates? The most political thing you can do is go to church. That's the most political thing you can do. And I love that. That's a reframing of what church is all about. Oh, it's absolutely a reframing. I think for a lot of people, we grew up in a church context culture where the normal reason you went to church was probably... I need something for my week. You know, I got to get through the next week. I want to be faithful to Jesus. I want to follow him in my individual life. You know, I want to be reminded that I'm forgiven, but it's really kind of about the individual. You know, I need my little food, my spiritual food, so I can get through the next week and then come back the following Sunday. And while I think that's a true statement, I want people to be fed in church and feel like they're given life inside of church. What you're saying broadens the scope of it. All of a sudden now we're talking about church as a place where a community is formed and shaped almost in opposition position to the ways they're being formed and shaped outside of the church. And maybe it's not that you're being formed and shaped by doing the Pledge of Allegiance, unless you're still in high school or something and listening to this. More so, I think that we are being formed and shaped in contradiction to the ways that media shapes us. So I think about cable news, I think about social media, and the ways that it trains us to treat our enemies, to think about how we disagree with others. I think that it's training us in a different set of priorities. And that's something that I desperately need, but maybe even more broadly than that, what I really really love is that it shows me that I'm a part of a bigger story. I'm a part of a bigger community. And when I come to church, it's not just about me getting my individual warm and fuzzies. It's actually about me living out the kingdom alongside these people so that others are attracted, like you said, to say, hey, I want to be a part of this society because there's something different here in how you love one another and treat one another. And it's something that I think we desperately need right now for the reason that you started off this podcast with saying our political discipleship is thin. We don't see churches having much to do with our politics. In your book, you explore this idea of submission and subversion. And we've kind of explored how that played out in the life of Jesus. But I think it'd be a great way to kind of close down the interview is exploring both of those terms, submission and subversion, and what you mean by them. And I say that because especially with subversion, I think what people hear when you say a word like that is not what you mean. So let's just start here. What is subversion? If the politic of Jesus involves subversion, what is subversion according to Jesus? I can give you a more precise definition, but subversion is advocating for the kingdom of God. To use the definition, it's to use your words or actions to critique or undermine the usual way of doing something. People in different social positions will do that in a different way, right? But subversion in the Christian sense is saying the kingdom of God is here, and I'm inviting you to be a part of that. And so therefore, that is going to go against some of what the culture is offering you. So you just talked about formation, right? Part of this book is recognizing, as you said, our political discipleship is so thin because it's mainly coming from talking heads on cable news. So we have, I think a lot of people have a steady diet of cable news. I remember going to friends' houses all the time where in the background, it was just cable news nonstop, right? Cable news in terms of politics and whatever left or right side you're on, (laughs) it was them talking to you about how everything is going wrong. The world's going to end if this person's elected. You know, this is the worst decision ever. The new president needs to be impeached. It's just constant, constant fear mongering. And what the gospel does is it subverts that way of thinking. It says, Jesus announced a kingdom, and he announced the kingdom of peace, and he announced the kingdom of hope. 
And so when we are subverting this world, we are advocating for the kingdom of God. Now, what you're getting at in your question here is a lot of times when we hear subversion, we think, okay, I need to go out and emphasize my freedom. I don't want to wear a mask. I don't yeah, want I was gonna to ask, do I mean, this. is that subversion, right? <laughs> hey, it's COVID is around, but you can't put a face shield on my face. I'm going to subvert the rule of the public authorities, health authorities. I will not wear that mask. And if you don't like it, you can call the cops on me. Is that subversion? Yeah. So I argue in my book, that's not the type of subversion that Jesus was getting at. Jesus was getting at a different type of subversion because you need to ask in that question, how are you advocating for the kingdom of God? By saying, I'm not going to do something that my governing authorities told me to do. Are you spreading the witness of Jesus through that or are you not? Now, some of these things are complicated in terms of what we're supposed to do, but I do think we need to go back to this most subversive thing that Jesus did was actually in one way, submit. (laughs) He submitted (laughs) to the Roman Empire. And so he was acknowledging that God had placed these rulers in these positions. And therefore, because God was his ultimate authority, he said, I can submit to you. And Rome and the rest of them didn't know what to do with him. You know, it's in John 18. He comes before Pilate and he asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says in John, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And we think, oh, it's a spiritual kingdom. I don't think that's what he says. He says, my kingdom is not of this world, because if it was, I would have gathered an army to fight. (laughs) And he goes, look at my army. It's all these fishermen. It's these fishermen who don't know what they're doing. They all ran away when you guys came right in the garden. They all scattered. They didn't know what to do. He goes, no, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, it's not the type of kingdom that you expect. And so when Jesus is asked, hey, are you going to subvert society by raising up an army and by advocating for your kingdom in this way? That is not the way that he does that. So I don't think going against the governing authorities in an example like masks, I know there's new research coming out, so forth and so on, but let's just stick with that example to say, I'm not going to wear masks. I don't understand how that's advocating for the kingdom of God. But I do think, for example, if we were to go to the civil rights movement, that is more of an example of advocating for what is true about humanity And you're actually going for the flourishing of all humanity. So you're subverting the empire. You're subverting the government by saying, I believe all humans are made in the image of God and there should not be different rules for different people. That actually is advocating for, I think, a Christian ideal. So that's different, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I get not liking wearing masks. I didn't like wearing a mask. I don't know many people who got a lot of thrills from wearing masks. You know, we have to say this was at a time when there's things we knew, there's things we didn't know. We didn't know what was going to be effective. And so, you know, everybody's trying to make prudential judgments the best that they can. And yet it seems to me that there's a major difference, like you just laid out with the civil rights movement, between saying, hey, I am going to lay down my life and my physical welfare on behalf of not just my people, but if you're a white protester on behalf of other peoples, I'm going to lay all of this down in a nonviolent protest for their sake inside a society unto the truth of stating that, hey, all people really are made in the image of God. That is radically differently to me than somebody says, I as an individual am going to stand up for my individual rights by not wearing this mask because I can be free by myself. It's like, look, masks aren't prejudicial. (laughs) And actually nowhere in the Bible do you have the right to or not wear a mask, right? And so you're not even defending a point that I think is worth defending. But what's interesting is that's a defense of the individual and the individual's rights, which there's a place for that. I don't want to minimize that. That is a major difference between that, though, and the defense of a group and a group that has, you know, serious, significant, violent and political prejudice that is laid against it. Those are two radically different things. But again, I think the other major difference is how they did it, right? One was a nonviolent protest. And I'm not saying it was violent to take off your mask. I doubt anybody did it violently. But, you know, when the person at the store comes up to you and says, hey, sir, would you please put that mask on? And then you're a big jerk to that person. Yeah, you haven't been violent, but you probably just broke some biblical speech commands in the process of how you treat (laughs) that individual. Yeah, I'll just say a quick line. I think it's easy for us to confuse our American freedom with our Christian freedom and to combine those things and have those two things kind of slide together. And so I hear a lot of people say, well, I'm free. I can do this because I'm free. Now, I just think we need to make the distinction in terms of what our American freedoms are, if you're a citizen of the United States, and what your Christian freedoms are. And I don't think often 
when we are <laughs> using our American freedoms that we're combining that or thinking through what our Christian freedoms are and how those should interact with one another. According to the scriptures, your Christian freedom is mainly that you are supposed to obey God over the human authorities when they tell you to do something that is against God. That's your Christian freedom, right? Another way of subverting, I think, is to remind rulers of what they are called to do. In other words, when they step outside of the authority that God has given them, when they start telling you who you are to worship, <laughs> when they start telling you what your confession should be, they are thereby stepping outside of the authority that God has given them, and we should call them to account for that. So I think those two kind of ways of thinking about subversion of an act, when the apostles say, we don't obey you, we must obey God first. When you tell us to stop sharing this message, we have freedom to not do that. I think that's the primary example we have of how they're subverting. And then also that they say, hey, you can't tell us who we are to worship. And I do think there's a tendency, <laughs> without knowing it, that our governing authorities begin telling us who and what we ought to worship. And as Christians, we say, no, we don't worship what you tell us to worship. I think of another major example of subversion in recent history. And you were in Portland, I think, at the time of some of the Antifa riots that happened, burning down buildings, public destruction. In Seattle, there was actual deaths that occurred You know, inside of some of these regions that Antifa organizers controlled. And so I have people on the left who assure me that, you know what, when you are fighting for justice, however they define justice in that instance, sometimes you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. And they might point to Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his plot to kill Hitler. And they'll say, look, what we're doing isn't any different than that. So is that the kind of subversion we're talking about? Because I can imagine someone listening to this, you know, we brought up masks as an example. Say, okay, see here, now I know the truth. You're for subversion on the left, but not the right. I figured it out. So, I mean, what do you do with Antifa? That kind of thing. Well, you go back to John 18, he says, don't subvert by violence. And so I think, you know, I was in Portland, as you said, during all of this, when you are destroying property, when you are breaking laws, when you are doing things, that are against social order in this sense. I don't think that's the way Jesus is commanding us to subvert. And so I just don't think that fits. And I think that's different from the civil rights movement where there was peaceful protest. And so I did see in Portland many peaceful protests over racial issues. And I think that is a good way. They would walk around, they would hold up signs, and they would let their voice be known. I think that is a good way of subverting the system when you think things are unfair or they're not causing flourishing for all humanity. But when it turns to violence and when it turns to destruction, I think that's where you step over the line and you're actually going against biblical commands. That's really clear and helpful. It seems like we have to live in this tension between subversion and submission, and that requires prudence. It requires wisdom to make the right decision in the right moment. But as we're talking, again, the idea I'm getting here is this idea of subversive submission, that the most subversive thing we can often do is submit in very unexpected, self-sacrificial ways. And of course, Jesus becomes the model of that for us. And so I'm just curious, from your perspective, do you hold subversion and submission as two things that exist in tension? Or is there one that kind of gets primacy over the other? I mean, how do you orient yourself trying to put those two things together? I'm still kind of working through that, even though <laughs> I wrote the book on this. At least the way I've thought of this is both of these actions are submitting to God, right? So subversion is submitting to God because he is calling us to do something that is different than maybe what society is doing. But submission is submitting to God because God has put these people in place. And so one of the lines I like to use or just point out in the scriptures is Revelation 13 and Romans 13 exists in your Bible at the same time. Now, you might not know what both those passages say, but Revelation 13 is Paul's command to submit to the governing authorities. Revelation 13 says these governing authorities are beasts that come from Satan. <laughs> And both of those things are true at the same time. And so both of those tell us we actually have two different actions to make, both kind of a submissive and a subversive action, but both of those fall under our submission to God. And so your question was, are they two different actions or are they one action? I think in the cross, they actually end up kind of being one action. They end up being one action that actually somehow comes together. And this makes a lot of sense of revelation where he says, John keeps telling us, go out and conquer, go out and conquer, go out and have victory is another way to translate. But then he says, how do you do this? He says, you do it by acting in the way of the slain lamb. <laughs> and so it's this really subversive message to the Roman empire. 
But in the midst of it, he's saying, you know, all you do is you witness and you witness unto death. And so I tend to think they come together is a short answer. That's a great answer. One of the things that I've been wrestling with recently is the rather rapid onset of Christian nationalism, by which I don't mean that it hasn't always been around. What I mean is that all of a sudden, it seems like a lot of people are becoming rather comfortable with titling themselves as Christian nationalists or dabbling in Christian nationalist ideas. And one of my critiques of Christian nationalism is that if you're a Christian nationalist, you really don't understand what story you're a part of. (laughs) You're living in the wrong story. And the issue isn't that you're trying to live from nowhere. You know where you live. You live in America, right? The problem is that you're trying to live from nowhere know when. You don't understand where we are in the arc of redemptive history. And so what you'll see these groups do is they'll pull from Israel's monarchical history and they'll say, see, it was true back then and we're just making it true right now. And I want to shout and say, hey, that's part of the story. That's not your part of the story. You've got it mixed up. But I am curious, have you seen this kind of rapid onset of Christian nationalism? And if so, how do you see your angle on politics engaging with Christian nationalists? Yeah. And I think what you just said there is so wise. I do think it's a confusion of when we are living or where we are living. At the end of the book, I say, you know, politics for Christians is so hard because we live between the ages. And what that means is that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here, but also the old age is still here. So the city of man still exists and the city of God exists at the same time. And there's overlap between the two. And I think that the error of Christian nationalism is that you think the circle should overlap. So if you think of it as a Venn diagram, it's partially overlapping right now because we are dual citizens right now. But the problem with Christian nationalism, I know there's a lot of different definitions of Christian nationalism, but the problem with the basic form of it is that you think, okay, the kingdom of God needs to be fully here right now in our nation. But only Jesus Christ brings that about in the end when the city of Jerusalem comes down and actually replaces the kingdom of Babylon or the city of Babylon. So that's going to happen in the future. That's not happening now. In the meantime, our call is to spread what I call a politic of persuasion. And so we persuade people that this kingdom is a better kingdom, but we don't force them to do that. So my big problem with Christian nationalism, if I'm just going to zero in on it, is that people think that Christianity should be fused with American life. And often they do that by dominion or by force. We're going to pass laws that force you to believe like us. And I just don't think that's the way Christianity works. (laughs) Christianity works by persuasion, not by force. Jesus wasn't going around saying, do you believe in me? All right, I'm going to make you bow down right now. He spread a message and said, you're invited into this. I'm going to give you the choice of whether you want to be a part of this or not. So I do think it's a confusion of categories. And I am concerned, even in the writing of this book, when I say political gospel, everyone's like, oh, you must be a Christian nationalist. You want to bring the gospel to the Christian nation. Now, I'm a professor, so I like to nuance things. I do think it's good that Christianity has and should continue to influence our nation, just like everyone's beliefs should continue to influence our nation. So it's not wrong to advocate for your beliefs. I think a lot of people respond by saying, well, our Christianity should have nothing to do with the public square. That's also a false view. I don't think that's true. We live in a pluralistic society. We should all have the opportunity to advocate for our beliefs in the public square. That's exactly what a democracy is, that we advocate for our beliefs in the public square. But it's a different argument to say that my voice should be privileged and my voice should be the only one heard and my voice should be the one or our voice should be the one that is then instituted into law, (laughs) right? That's just not the way America works, nor is that the way that Christianity works. And so I think we have a double problem. We have a problem in terms of what Christianity is, and actually we have a problem in terms of what America is. As I've reflected and engaged with various Christian nationalists, one of the things that strikes me is that they're really reflective of the kind of black and white thinking that, to be honest, I associate with fairly sloppy, loose thinking in general. And what I mean by that is it's either Christianity has no influence in the public square or Christians rule everything. (laughs) 
Those are our two options, as though that's all that there is. And there seems to me to be one other major category mistake that makes that possible, which is what you talked about in your book. If the church is the political assembly, the place where the kingdom of God is coming on earth as it is in heaven, it cannot be the nation state. It can't be both places at once. And so we should never expect that black and white world where it's either Christians have no say or on the other side, Christians rule everything. That's why I like the idea of an embassy, because it's acknowledging the fact that, no, we do have a voice inside of the public square. And that voice is not just by our words spoken. It's also by our deeds that are done. And yet no embassy expects over five, 10 years to all of a sudden be in control of the White House. (laughs) That's not how things go when it comes to international relations. And that's not even our goal as Christian. It's not to get rid of the city of man. It's to advocate for the kingdom of God until Jesus brings the kingdom of God in full. What you just said is exactly right. First Peter 2, where is the holy nation? He calls us a holy nation, right? The church. The church is the holy nation. So it's not anywhere else. It's only in the church. We have a bunch of holy nations around the world. <laughs> it's called the local assembly called the church. And so if you try to begin to say that holy nation is more than the church, you're actually doing something that scripture is saying, no, no, you, you already have a holy nation. It already exists. And so to try to do more than that seems to be outside of what God is calling us to do. I won't put these words in your mouth, but I have said them on Twitter. I think in its robust form, this is the reason why Christian nationalism really is a kind of heresy that we have to avoid. And it's because it's a heresy of the church. You can go back to the creeds and we could talk about some of the things that are said in there that it might actually negate and break against. And again, this is Patrick Miller saying this, not Patrick Schreiner. (laughs) (laughs) One of the Patricks. Uh, One of the Patricks here is making that statement. But I think it's a deadly teaching that we have to take really seriously. And I am really worried by what I'm seeing in in terms of its wide embrace by some pretty serious figures out there. I just want to end with a maybe more practical question. Let's say someone listening to this is a stay-at-home parent or, you know, a businessman. They're in finance. They're an attorney. They're a pest control technician. They're a mechanic. You know, they're probably thinking, is, look, my job is not very political at all. My life doesn't seem very engaged in politics unless it's voting season or I'm doom scrolling on Twitter or maybe binging cable news. So on a practical level, I mean, does the politic of Jesus have anything to say to everyday people? Or is this just a mental exercise we run, you know, once a year when we get into the voting booth? I would just say all of us are political beings. We all exist in communities together and we're trying to figure out how we organize life together. And so you can't separate yourself from politics, whether you're in politics or not in politics. I mean, I think a lot of people feel like, man, I'm so removed from all of this. But what I'm trying to do is reframe the political conversation and saying, as I said earlier, you are involved in politics in the worldly sense. And more importantly, you're involved in politics in terms of the church. You are a Christian. So you have a politic and you are actually an ambassador, if we're going to keep with the embassy imagery, right? You're an ambassador for the kingdom of God here on this earth, which is your ultimate politic. So what does that mean? That means that affects everything you should do. That means your whole life revolves around what I call the Christian politic. I think I said something in the book, like if you're a stay-at-home mom, you're probably wondering what this has to do with you. You're training future soldiers in the army of Christ, soldiers that will advocate for the kingdom by peace, right? You're the first line of defense, actually, (laughs) or the first line in the army who's saying, we've got a bunch of little kids running around here. And what I want to do is introduce them to King Jesus and see if they will also follow this king. And so, yeah, your job is completely political. That's the same thing for the plumber or for anyone working just in a secular environment. You're around non-Christians all day, and you're an ambassador for the kingdom. So I think this has everything to do with everyone. That's what a politic is. It's about everyone and how we relate to one. I want that to be encouraging to people. You know, if you run a business, you can run your business like it's a business of the United States, which of course it might be if you've got an LLC, you've got some legal protections. So do that. But also remember, your business is actually a business under the reign and rule of King Jesus. That's going to change how you treat your employees. That's going to change how you deploy your resources. It's going to change the kind of business partners that you will or won't get into business with. And you can do that for every single profession. Like you said, even the plumber, the way and the excellence with which you do your job, the honesty that you show to the people that you 
you go inside their houses. You don't overcharge them. You try to treat them fairly. These are all expressions of the politic of Jesus, such that the way you do your plumbing should make someone ask, why are you that kind of plumber? And you can say, well, it's because I plumb for Jesus. And that might sound a little weird. Yeah, um, yeah. But I, I think no. if people had that attitude throughout their entire lives, we would be a society that was proclaiming Jesus in our words and in our deeds. And that's what I loved about your book was it gave me a sense of vision, both for what the New Testament had to say regarding politics, but also more broadly, how we as Christians living in the present can live that out in our daily lives. So I, again, I just want to encourage you if you're listening to this to go pick up this fantastic book, Political Gospel. Patrick, where can people find you? In my office at home. <laughs> All right. We'll include the address in our show notes. Yeah. Twitter and Amazon, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to buy Patrick's book, I think it's at every major bookseller. Again, I'd encourage that. And you're a nice guy on Twitter. So I'm sure they can find you there. But thank you so much for being on our show. Would you just mind praying for our audience? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Patrick. Father, we thank you just for this time that we can have this discussion around our true politic. Um, we thank you that Jesus Christ is our King, and that we are called to submit to him in every part of our lives. We pray that by your spirit, we would we would do that. Father, we don't have strength in our own selves to do this, but we pray that as you lead us and as you guide us, that we would be an embassy and ambassadors for your kingdom here in this world. Father, we long for your kingdom to come, and we ask that it would come soon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.